Our scripture lesson tonight comes from Joshua chapter 16. Psalm 137 actually sets us up rather nicely tonight, but you may have known that. (laughs) Hear now the word of our God from Joshua chapter 16, starting in verse 1. The allotment of the people of Joseph went from the Jordan by Jericho, east of the waters of Jericho, into the wilderness, going up from Jericho into the hill country to Bethel. Then going from Bethel to Luz, it passes along to Ataroth, the territory of the Archites. Then it goes down westward to the territory of the Yaphlethites, as far as the territory of Lower Beit Horon, then to Gezer, and it ends at the sea. The people of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim received their inheritance. The territory of the people of Ephraim by their clans was as follows. The boundary of their inheritance on the east was Ataroth Adar, as far as Upper Beit Horon, and the boundary goes from there to the sea. On the north is, is Mikmethath. Then on the east, the boundary turns around towards Tananath Shiloh and passes along beyond it on the east to Yanoah. Then it goes down from Yanoah to Ataroth and to Naarah and touches Jericho, ending at the Jordan. From Tapua, the boundary goes westward to the brook Cana and ends at the sea. Such is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Ephraim by their clans, together with the towns that were set apart for the people of Ephraim within the inheritance of the Manassites, all those towns with their villages. However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. Then allotment was made to the people of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph. To Machir, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, were allotted Gilead and Bashan, because he was a man of war. And allotments were made to the rest of the people of Manasseh by their clans, Abiezer, Helek, Asriel, Shechem, Hefer, and Shemidah. These were the male descendants of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, by their clans. Now, Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, had no sons but only daughters, and these are the names of his daughters, Mahla, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. They approached Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the leaders and said, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. So according to the mouth of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. Thus there fell to Manasseh ten portions, besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is on the other side of the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance along with his sons. The land of Gilead was allotted to the rest of the people of Manasseh. The territory of Manasseh reached from Asher to Mikmethath, which is east of Shechem. Then the boundary goes along southward to the inhabitants of En-Tapua. The land of Tapua belonged to Manasseh, but the town of Tapua on the border of Manasseh belonged to the people of Ephraim. Then the boundary went down to the brook Cana. These cities, to the south of the brook, among the cities of Manasseh, belong to Ephraim. Then the boundary of Manasseh goes on the north side of the brook and ends at the sea, the land to the south being Ephraim's and that to the north being Manasseh's, with the sea forming its boundary. On the north, Asher is reached, and on the east, Issachar. Also in Issachar and in Asher, Manasseh had Beit Shean and its villages, and Ibleam and its villages, and the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, and the inhabitants of Endor and its villages, and the inhabitants of Ta'anak and its villages, and the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. The third is Naphath. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. 
Now, when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me? And Joshua said to them, If you are a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest, and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The people of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell on the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Beit Shean and its villages, and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. This is the word of the Lord. So, Last time we, we looked at the first part of the division of the inheritance, and we saw uh, first how Moses had given the eastern tribes, the two and a half tribes on the east side. Uh, there, I think there are still uh, maps in your, in your pews from last week. And we also looked last time at the inheritance of Judah in, in the south. But tonight we're just going to cover two more tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, because to a certain extent I want to drop back and take a look at what's happening in the big picture here. Uh, chapters 13 to 19 are explaining the division of the land. So we heard in chapter 13 the eastern inheritance of Reuben and Gad and half of Manasseh. Chapters 14 and 15 laid out the inheritance of Judah. Chapters 16 and 17 now focus on Joseph. And then chapters 18 and 19 relate the story of the inheritance of the rest of the tribes. But what's going on in the big picture of what God is doing for them and how does that connect to us? Well, the word translated inheritance is used 50 times in the book of Joshua. 44 of those 50 are found in these central chapters. Now, what's the inheritance that God has promised them? And, and if you've read through the book of Joshua before, have, have you ever wondered why is it that Judah and Joseph receive all of the conquered land, you might say. Because you get to chapter 18 in verse 3, and then Joshua asks the other seven tribes that haven't received their inheritance yet, how long will you put off going in to take possession of the land? Now, I'll admit, when I was a kid, I loved maps. Geography was my thing. And... But so you know, I'd, I'd look at these maps and I'd and, and I'd and I'd read the stories and I'd, I'd I'd see okay. So Joshua and the army went through and they conquered all this area and Judah and Joseph get all the conquered area and all the. Why does the rest? Why, what about the rest? What about everybody else? Only later, as I got older, did I start reading more carefully. Because if you think about what we've read, when the army went through, what did they actually conquer and hold? They wiped out 31 kings. They killed lots of, basically they killed everybody they captured. But the army kept moving. So the the united army of Israel did not take possession of anything. Except the camp at Gilgal. The camp at Gilgal where they first crossed the Jordan River. This is where they are. 
This is where the, the, basically the whole people of Israel is living in the Jordan Valley right around Gilgal, except for those who have already taken possession on the far side of the Jordan, on the east side. And so this means that when you think about what has Israel actually taken possession of yet, the answer is nothing. They, they defeated kings in battle, but they didn't burn the cities. Why would they burn the cities? They're supposed to live in the cities. But they also didn't take possession of the cities yet because they've got to, you know, if they leave behind people, their people are going to be sitting ducks for everybody around them. So the army has to come in first, do, they first do the southern, southern maneuver to take out the southern kings. It's a classic sort of divide and conquer. So they come in right in the middle, they turn south, take out the south, they go north, take out the north, and then they come back, and it seems like it takes about five years for this whole thing to happen because 40 years in the wilderness, and then uh, Caleb says last time that he's now 80. He, he had been 40, and now he's 85. So, okay, 40 years of the wilderness, five years of the conquest. So five years of battle, in which time, in, during which time they haven't taken possession of anything. They, so that means, what, what happened in Hebron during those five years? They took Hebron the first year, it looks like. But then what happened? Well... You know, sure, they defeated the king of Hebron, they defeated the, the army, they turned north, they went fought, fought more. But back in Hebron, the Canaanites are back. Now, they're a lot weaker, their king is dead, they don't have nearly the army they used to, but the people of the land haven't been eradicated, they're still there. That's why last time we saw that Caleb has to go up back, back to Hebron and fight it again in order to take possession of it. And in the same way, there's a lot of fighting ahead for Israel to take possession of their inheritance. Whoever wishes to take possession of their inheritance may do so. Actually, it's it's a classic case of predestination and free will. Only God can save. Only Joshua can inherit, can cause Israel to inherit the land. At the same time, if you don't believe God's promises and go up and take possession of the land, then you'll never actually get your inheritance. We saw last time that, that Judah was led by Caleb, the Kenizzite. And we saw that the Kenizzites were actually one of the condemned peoples from Genesis 15. But Caleb believed God. He and Joshua were two of the spies sent by Moses. And so Caleb now has, is leading Judah to take possession of their inheritance. At least in the hill country and the Negev, uh, the Egyptians had too much power in the coastal plain, the Philistines are starting to settle there, so there's a way in which Caleb and, and Judah only take the hill country of Judah. They don't take the plains. We'll see a very similar thing for Ephraim tonight. And we keep seeing that, that Jesus is our Joshua. He is the one who has who has conquered the great enemy. He, he has won the battle against sin and death and the devil. We are set free from bondage to sin and death. But that doesn't mean the war is over. Jesus himself promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. That means the battle is still going on. When Jesus wins the great battle, that doesn't mean that the war is over. Spiritual warfare is still happening. Jesus is the great Joshua who causes us to inherit the land, but we still have to believe his promises and walk forward in faith and take possession of the land. 
the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter opens by describing the church as elect exiles of the dispersion. Just, just think about what that means for a moment. Peter understands us to be elect, chosen of God. Well, elect is a term that was used to God's chosen people, his elect people. God had chosen Abraham and his seed. But Peter also understands us to be elect exiles, which reminds us of the Babylonian captivity, that we're, we are exiles. We are, we are not living in, in our true home. We are living in exile. But he also says we are elect exiles of the dispersion. We are a dispersed people who are scattered abroad. Think back to what we saw in the book of Esther, where in the book of Esther, they're living in Persia. They're not planning on going back to Jerusalem. But in the same way, we are elect exiles of the dispersion. We are, we're not planning on going back to the earthly Jerusalem. That's not our focus. So Peter is using familiar terms from the Old Testament to help the church think about who we are and how we fit into the story of what God is doing. Peter, in 1 Peter 1, verse 4, will go on to speak of how we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? To an inheritance. Same word that is used 44 times in the central chapters of the book of Joshua. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Israel received a perishable inheritance from Joshua as a picture of the imperishable inheritance that we receive from Jesus. So we should expect to see some connection between Israel's story and our own. What Israel is doing in the conquest, Joshua has gone before them, led them through the, the initial battle, which gives them possession of the land, and yet they still have to take possession of their own inheritance in the same way that Jesus has, has won the, the inheritance for us, which he now calls us to receive and grasp by faith. So, yeah, so actually, that, that, uh, thank you for picking that song by faith, because that fit perfectly with what we're talking about today. Faith must result in action. So, the opening description of the inheritance of Joseph starts with a, a combined account of their territory. Uh, now, if you, if you look at your map and if you watch the, the, the sort of what's being described, you'll notice there's a gap in between Judah that we already heard and Ephraim and Manasseh that we hear about tonight. So, what's that gap doing? Um, the way, it's, this is just, it's important to recognize that, that as we saw in our reading, we heard references to Asher's inheritance and, uh, and Issachar's inheritance. We haven't heard about that yet. It, it, that only shows up in chapter 18. We have to, the, the text is written down after all these events have happened. So, in that sense, it's describing the land as it was later developed, as it was later described, not just how it was at the time. Um, which is also why there may be, you, you'll, you'll notice there'll be some, some descriptions that don't seem quite right because the way, it, the way it was first given 
the later carvings up of the land keep changing things. So it's not, you have to remember, this was, the, the pro, this was a process. I mean, one of the things we'll hear about, um, actually, we won't hear about it in Joshua, but we'll hear about it in Judges. Dan's inheritance is originally in the south, between uh, on the sea coast, basically right around Ju- Judah and Benjamin. Well, that's prime Philistine territory. By the way, this is why Samson has Samson is of the tribe of Dan. It's why Samson has all the problems with the Philistines. But because of that. The Danites are sort of like, we're never going to survive here. So the Danites move north and wind up taking the northernmost part of the land. That wasn't the inheritance that God gave them, but it was what they could take possession of, so that's what they did. So you, just, you have to remember that, that there's an awful lot in our story that's it's, it's not quite as simple as, oh, God said, here's your land, and so, oh, we will go take it. That's what they should have done, but it's not quite necessarily what they did do. But, so, there's a gap in, in between Judah and Joseph, filled, as we hear later, by Benjamin. But the order of inheritances that we have in our text says as much about Judah and Joseph as it does... It's, it's not giving it to us necessarily in chronological order as much as it is thematic order. Why did Judah go first? In a sense, you could say it was birth order. And you might say, well, think back. Well, who was the actual firstborn? Well, Reuben was the firstborn. He has his inheritance on the east side. But also, Reuben had been removed from his status as firstborn because he slept with his father Jacob's concubine. And so he had been sort of demoted, as it were. Simeon and Levi came next. But they also were demoted by Jacob because they had slaughtered the Shechemites after the rape of their sister Dinah. So, so the, the oldest three all get pushed down in the pecking order, you might say. And so Judah winds up going first in the birth order. And yet, Judah does not receive the double portion of the firstborn. That honor goes to Joseph. And you see that in our text tonight with, because Joseph gets two portions. One for Ephraim, one for Manasseh. Though they complain that they only get one portion. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But, but in fact, they receive a double portion because Jacob had adopted Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, as the, uh, by adopting his, his sons, they become, you might say, sons of Jacob, and that way they can receive their own portions separately. Now, half of Manasseh had stayed on the other side of the Jordan, and the rest of Manasseh and all of Ephraim now receive their inheritance. And we hear about Ephraim's inheritance in verses 5 through 10. Now, in, in verse 7, we're told that, uh, that Ephraim extends from the river, the Jordan River, westward to the sea, verse 8. Now, if you look at your maps that you have, you, they show Ephraim as landlocked. Uh, that's because later divisions of the land seem to cut into the territory of Ephraim so that it doesn't quite reach either the river or the sea. But verse 10 points out that, that Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. This is a common refrain both here in Joshua and then also in the book of Judges, that rather than driving out the Canaanites, they put them to forced labor. In other words, they don't quite believe God's promises, and they don't take God's warnings seriously. 
God had told them in Deuteronomy that if they let the Canaanites stay, the Canaanites would become a snare, leading them away from worshiping the true God alone. Now, as we've seen, if Canaanites repent and believe in Yahweh, well then, that Canaanite is no longer a Canaanite. That Canaanite becomes part of Israel. But Israel is called to bring God's eschatological judgment upon Canaan. In other words, God is telling the Canaanites, this is judgment day. Final judgment is being rendered upon Canaan. Those who believe in God and follow him will live. Those who reject God and rebel against him will die. But Israel takes a halfway approach. Some of those who reject God and rebel against him may live. We won't put you to death. We'll just let you live. That may sound merciful at first, but it's not. If Israel allows the Canaanites to live in their rebellion, then not only will the Canaanites continue to bring judgment upon themselves, but they will also bring judgment upon Israel. Now, in, in the New Testament, our weapons are spiritual, so we don't, we don't go around killing anybody. But excommunication is the spiritual death penalty that the church wields. It's the last resort when a person refuses to believe God and walk in his ways. But, and if you think about it, if the church doesn't excommunicate, if the church sort of refuses to do discipline, well then, what happens? Well, then, then unbelief continues to grow and fester in the church. As we saw in the case of Achan, if the church refuses to discipline the one who rebels, then the church will suffer for it. When, when Israel dealt with Achan, God blessed his people. When Israel was unfaithful, God's curse came against them. Now, when God, but if you think about God's curse, God was patient. He didn't sort of, it wasn't sort of instant judgment. In the case of Achan, it was, it was really quick. It was like, okay, you need to deal with this now because he was teaching them, don't put it off. Now, but God's normal pattern was to be very patient and not bring judgment immediately and allow people to see the consequences of their own sin. And even so, as, as elders, when we try to deal with people who are straying, we seek to be patient. If there's any hint of repentance, we will work with them. But if there's not, then there needs to be excommunication. There needs to be, you might say, the spiritual death penalty cutting people off from the church. And, and that's, part of, that's part of what we see in the way that the book of Joshua is calling us to see how, what we're doing as the church of Jesus Christ. So in, in chapter 17, then, we turn to the inheritance of Manasseh, and particularly the western half of Manasseh, because we had, we had heard that about Machir and, and the, the eastern Manassites receive a portion in Gilead and Bashan, and we're told that he was a man of war. Uh, part of it is that's, this is going to be the northeasternmost part of Israel. They're right up against their, sort of like Judah receives the portion right next to the Philistines, while Manasseh receives the portion that's right next to what will be the Syrians. Uh, this is... This is a territory, frontier territory, as it were, where enemies will be attacking often, so you're going to need some good warriors up there. So now, verses 1 and 2 focus on the sons of Manasseh, but verse 3 introduces the problem of what happens when a man has no sons. The Zelophehad had no sons, but only daughters. Now, in Numbers 26, we're told that Zelophehad's daughters were 
to inherit alongside of their cousins in order to make sure that no family was omitted from the inheritance. So if you think about the logistics of this, so there's um, all the other sons of Manasseh had sons, but Zelophehad only had daughters. So Zelophehad's daughters are going to inherit. But then in, in Numbers 36, we're told that the tribe of Manasseh came to Moses and brought a complaint, saying, well, if the daughters of Zelophehad marry outside the tribe, their land will wind up alienated from Manasseh. So let's say if, if the daughters of Zelophehad marry somebody from Ephraim, well then that Ephraimite will, in a sense, hold title to the land. And so in the year of Jubilee, it will revert not to Manasseh, but to Ephraim. So how is this going to work? This results in Moses' decree that the daughters of Zelophehad should only marry within the tribe of Manasseh so that the land will not be alienated from the tribe. So now, if you think about how this works, if the daughters of Zelophehad receive portions along with their male cousins, and since they're required to marry within the tribe, then that means that the male cousins who already have their own portion there will now also receive the daughters of Zelophehad portion. So this, this is partly an explanation of why Manasseh has such a large territory, because there's these extra, uh, extra people. It's, I mean, Manasseh certainly has the largest inheritance of any of the tribes. One estimate suggests that the square mileage of Manasseh's inheritance was about twice that of Judah. I mean, there's lots of, there's lots of different maps that people have drawn to try to figure out what exactly the size is. But Manasseh, if you include both East and West Manasseh, it's a huge inheritance. Verses 7 to 11 describe the boundaries of the Western part of Manasseh's inheritance. And you'll notice here again that there's, it assumes that there are already tribal boundaries with Asher and Issachar, which strongly suggests that Joseph is being given special attention in our story in order to single out Joseph as the one who receives the double portion. Now, it's also worth noting that Joshua was from the tribe of Ephraim. So, if you think about it, the two tribes that seem to have been first in taking possession of their land would be the tribe that was associated with Caleb and the tribe associated with Joshua. It's not surprising. The two tribes that had representatives that believed God in the first place 40 years ago now are sort of, they've, they've sort of gotten it better. The other tribes have, it sure looks like there was a whole lot of sort of wishy-washy, sort of, yes, sure, we're going to follow God, but, well, we're kind of just along for the ride. And you see a lot of that in the way that the other tribes seem to function. Even in the book of Numbers, there are the two censuses. And you see some tribes shrink dramatically during the wilderness wanderings. Other tribes grow dramatically. That's not just about sort of if, 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 you, if you think about birth, you know, birth rates, it's not just talking about birth rates. I mean, as we've seen, it, what we call Israel, what we call the 12 tribes, all of the mixed multitude that joins itself to Israel has to join one tribe or another. So they're not just, these aren't just like birth rates within tribes. There could also be defection rates of people saying, 
I'm done with this. I'm out of here. There, or other people saying, you know what? I, I, I like I like this tribe. I'm yeah. so we tend to think of this as being about ethnicity and tribal tribal connections have to do with birth and family. Actually, it has a whole lot more to do with with it's it's sort of like when people try to talk about sort of Judaism as as an ethnicity. It's like actually throughout history Judaism has been a religion and people who have come from all I mean that's why you if you if you're not familiar with this there are, there are many Jews or sort of Israelis today who have almost no Jewish blood in them because these are people who have converted to Judaism centuries or millennia ago and sort of but they've been part of this so that's where we have to remember that, that this much of what much of how we t- we now read the Bible is colored by, quite frankly, more sort of racial theories that don't reflect what the Bible actually was saying. Um, and so I think we're seeing some of that in the way that the description of these inheritances are are given us. Now, but we're also told that in verse um, in verse twelve that the people of Manasseh could not take possession of all of these cities that were described in verse 11, and the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. And when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. Again, it's worth noting, in the midst of the most faithful generation in Israel's history, the the one generation that obeyed better than any other, they didn't fully do what God said. Paul builds on this motif when he says in Romans 3, there is no one righteous, no, not one. Now, in in verse 14 of chapter 17, we hear a complaint from Joseph. The people of Joseph spoke to Joshua saying, why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am a numerous people since all along the Lord has blessed me? You you might think this puzzling at first when you look at the map, because on the map, Manasseh has twice as much territory as anyone else. But keep in mind that we only have a very tiny snippet of information. The book of Joshua is written down at the end of the process. The events that we're reading about took place years, perhaps decades, before they were written down at all, and probably centuries before they reached the form that we have them in. The historian in me wants to speculate about, I can, I, just for an exercise, I got about a dozen different scenarios as to what might be going on here. <laughs> but we're not given a dozen different scenarios. We're given the text that the word of the Lord has come to us in. What God has given us in the text is that Joseph's complaint is that they don't have enough space for their people. And the text clearly shows this is a proper complaint. This is not grumbling. This is not murmuring against Joshua. There's a problem here. We got a lot of people and not enough space. And they're trying to figure out the solution. And they do it by going to the proper authority and requesting the proper authority to deal with it. It's a very good complaint. Actually, just this week, I received a a complaint from a, a young person. And as I realized... She's right. And we need to do something about it. It's a good complainers are important. If you're if you're a manager of you 
You want good complainers, people who see problems and bring them to you and say, hey, there's a problem here, how can we fix it? But if you've, as, as parents, if your, kids, if your kids bring good complaints, that's awesome. It's time-consuming sometimes to deal with them, but still, they're good. It's why we have a whole chapter in our Book of Church Order on complaints. Now, there's, there's no chapter on grumbling, because grumbling is, 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 when you're, is when you're murmuring and backbiting, and you're not really interested in solving the problem. You just want to moan and groan. So, this is what, yeah, teach your children to be good complainers, which, of course, means you have to t- take them seriously when they bring complaints to you. But notice here, Joshua, okay, it's a good complaint, but he disagrees with their solution. Their solution is, we need more land. And Joshua says, well, no, if you're a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest. You know, there's, there's plenty of land. It's, perhaps it's not inhabited yet, the forest, but it's still yours. Take possession of it, clear the ground, and clear out the parasites and the Rephaim while you're at it. And actually, it's worth noting that it's actually right about this time that the archaeological records suggest there are a number of new settlements in the hill country. So it sounds like they took him up on this. But the people of Joseph said, Okay, but the hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Beit Shean and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. So the hill country of Ephraim is the center of the land. Actually, if, 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 when you look at the map, there's, you can see the, the shading in there that indicates the hilly region. And then you can also see the valleys around the Jordan River, Beit Shean, and the valley of Jezreel in the north. These are still strongholds of Canaanite power. And they have chariots of iron. Now, chariots can mow down infantry. The might-clad Israelites have no chance in the valleys. But Joshua is unmoved. And he says, you are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. Now, to Ephraim and Manasseh, it sounds like Joshua is commanding the impossible. But Joshua remembers what God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He commands the impossible because he knows God is faithful. Now, how, how should you respond when your complaint is denied? I, I like the way Benedict of Nursia handles this in the rule of St. Benedict. Benedict says that if your superior commands an impossible task, you should receive the order with all meekness and obedience and try to do it. If, however, you see that the task is altogether beyond your strength, he says, quietly and seasonably submit the reasons for your inability to your superior without pride, protest, or dissent. Bring, bring a respectful complaint. What do you do if your complaint is denied? If the superior still insists on his command, let the brother be convinced that so it is good for him, and let him obey from love, relying on the help of God. Basically, Benedict is expounding what Joshua says here to the tribes Ephraim and Manasseh. You may think that it's impossible, but it's what the Lord your God calls you to do. We, we need to have humility to submit in the Lord to those whom he has placed over us. There was once a, a pastor who had received advice from his presbytery. Uh, the following Sunday, he stood in the pulpit and said, you know, sometimes when you get bad advice, you just need to ignore it. 
Only a few people in the room realized what he was saying. Most of the people didn't realize what the presbytery had told him. But submission to authority doesn't come easily. But it's really important that when you have when you have the answer, sometimes it may sound like, oh, that's impossible. There's no way that's going to work. Sometimes you just need to do it. Because oftentimes, if, if, you could, if you only submit when you're persuaded that it's right, that it's the best answer, then you're really just submitting to yourself. You're not actually submitting to the one in authority. And that's why Benedict similar to what Joshua has showed us here, is saying, no, sometimes you just need to do it, or at least do your best to try to do it. You may be convinced there's no way this is going to work. But to do it, because God has put this person in the position of authority. Often our, our spiritual vision is weak. And our, our problem is we, we don't see where our blind spots are. If you could see your blind spots clearly, they, they wouldn't be blind spots. <laughs> I was recently told that I'm, I, I can be rather non-directive in my counsel. I rarely tell people, this is what you must do. And part of that's because I take very seriously my calling as God's messenger. If God hasn't said it, then I shouldn't tell you to. And pastors, maybe part of it is I've seen pastors fall into the trap of substituting personal opinion for the will of God. If, if I command you to do my, my personal opinion, uh, that's not what God has called me to do. Now, at the same time, sometimes the problem is just that I'm chicken. Sometimes I know what God requires, but I don't say it. And that's something I have to work on repenting of, because... and. I'm working on repenting of it. Remember that repentance unto life includes with a full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. So working on repenting is a, because repentance is a process. But that's where, when we think about how is it that we hear the word of God, when God calls us to do something, do we do it? Now, I want to, to close by calling you to see the glory of the inheritance that Joshua is pointing us to. Paul speaks in Ephesians 1, verse 11, that in Christ we have obtained an inheritance. What is this inheritance that we have received in Christ? He, Paul says, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So notice, again, you have... It's, only God can save. God's predestining power is behind it. The elect people of God. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul's actually using Joshua language. Just like Joshua caused Israel to inherit, but, well, they don't, but they haven't yet taken possession of it. In the same way, Jesus causes us to inherit, and he's given us, and this is where 
what we have is much better than what Joshua gave. Because Joshua said, okay guys, now go out there, have fun storming the castle. Um, but unlike Ephraim and Manasseh, we have received the Holy Spirit. God has sealed us with his own spirit, the uncreated grace that is God himself. And that's where he has sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And he calls us. It's after all, it's the, uh, the, same, the same Paul who begins Ephesians with this call to to the, the inheritance language until we acquire possession. It's the same epistle that he concludes with a discussion of spiritual warfare. What are we doing as, in our, as, between when Jesus has called us to himself and, well, we are waging spiritual warfare. We are fighting to take possession, to, to take possession of... Jesus will talk about how people are, are violent men storming the kingdom of heaven. I mean, are we are we taking our calling seriously to storm the kingdom of heaven, as it were, to take possession of the promises that God has given us? Because Jesus Christ is our great Joshua. In him we have obtained the inheritance, but we have not yet acquired possession. And that's what we are called to do as we live before him as his people. So let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, have mercy on us. Help us to, to be vigilant and diligent in our spiritual warfare, that we, might, that we might put on the full armor of God and trust in your great power and your might, that we might... That we might Walk before you as your children. Have mercy, Lord, and sustain and help us in the midst of this war. Grant that we might remember your great faithfulness. Grant that we might hold fast in the midst of of trial and tribulation. Have mercy, Lord, upon all those who are weak and frail. Have mercy upon those who are who are struggling with with physical affliction and who are dealing with with their the trials of, of body as, as well as of soul. Have mercy, Lord, upon those who are, who are struggling with, with depression and anxiety. Be their comfort and their shield. Help them in the midst of, in the, midst of the, the, the fears and the, and the anxiousness and the, the darkness that, that they encounter. Help them to hold fast to the light of the world who came in our flesh and who joined us to himself that he might join us to you. Lord, help us, and by your Holy Spirit, continue the work that you have begun, that even as you have sealed us with your promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, the down payment of our inheritance, that we might, that we might hold fast to you until we acquire possession of the inheritance to the praise of your glory. Lord, have mercy. Have mercy upon us in our, in our homes, in, in our relations as, as husbands and wives, as parents and children, as, as friends and roommates, and in our labors as, as workers and employers, and in each situation that you put us, Lord, in our neighborhoods, in our communities. Help us to show forth the, the, the goodness and the mercy of our Savior, that we might bear witness to Jesus, that we might show forth 
your great love for us in the way that we walk before the watching world, that they might see in us and hear from us the the glory of, of our Savior. And as we go to our rest now this night, we pray that you would strengthen, sustain, and comfort us and and help us by your Spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen.